1: Brody. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. As I'm sure you can hear, I'm a little bit under the weather today, drinking my pu'er tea and having a little bit of honey cake to try and get past this thing. I missed the boat and I missed the warning signs my body was sending me to get the echinacea going and the sambucol, Uh but uh, I am doing well. But uh, it allows me to play one of my favorite sound bites of all time. So, some of you will recognize this, but this is pretty much how I feel, except I just love doing this podcast. So, I am here even though I am run down just a little bit and feeling under the weather.
0: Who is it? It's that Ronnie Ferris. I'd like to have a word with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't come to the door right now. I'm afraid that in my weakened condition, I could take a nasty spill down the stairs and subject myself to further school absences. Save it, Ferris. Come down here. You can reach my parents at their places of business. Thank you for stopping by.
1: I appreciate your concern for my well-being. I am not leaving until you come down and talk to me. But you're here talking to me. I just love that movie. I don't know who doesn't, to be honest. But today we're not going to do so much of Ferris Bueller's Day out and just go and just rip and tear through the city. What we're actually going to do is we're going to talk today about professional cyclists and getting the strength training in that they need throughout the year. Now this is something that I've been getting a growing number of emails, thanks in large part to the writing I've been doing for Ped Cycling News as well as for trainingpeaks.com. And the courses, Strength Training for Cycling Success, that I have on Training Peaks University. Now, before you triathletes turn this off, this still applies to you. A lot of it applies to you because many of you are traveling or working long, hard hours. And uh, what we're going to talk about today are questions that I've been getting from coaches who are very forward-thinking. These started off actually in the spring, coaches who had started taking my course last spring, uh, 2019, Uh, as well as those who are taking it through the summer here. So this is going to cover a lot of information. I go into more detail in my Strength Training for Cycling Certification course, which will be released in the fall or winter of 2019. So if you are listening to this before it's released, make sure you're getting onto the HV Training newsletter because you guys on the newsletter are going to get a very special offer and uh, that's not ever going to come around again. So if you're interested, make sure you go over to humanvortextraining.com and sign up. But... For today, we're going to get into with some uh, Puerh tea. If you don't know what that is, it's a very strong, smoky black tea. It's very unique, kind of like the scotches I like, like Lefroy. Now, I don't always drink scotch, but when I do, it's delicious uh, and in uh, small amounts because I don't do it so often, so these bottles last uh, decades, actually, at this point. But let's get into the topic for today. One of the things that we want to think about with our athletes, so these... Emails have been coming primarily from coaches, although I'm sure some of you out there are professional cyclists or up and coming, going to Europe and, races, and racing in Carmaces and trying to get your racing legs ready to go and make that push to the next level. When we're talking about professional cyclists, we have to remember that most of you are going to be fairly young. So when we're talking about chronological age... Uh, male or female, although females tend to be a little bit older, uh, just because that sport thankfully is finally catching up and catching on with women around the world, uh, mostly the male cyclists we're talking about going professional are somewhere between the ages of 17 and 22. Now, I worked with the pit cycling team. That was the first team I ever coached before I moved abroad and worked with White City Racing. And most of those racers were the ages of 18 to 22. So uh, we had quite a A good bit of success there, and a lot of that has to do with the coaching philosophy, uh, but also with the athletes who were in the club at the time and how open they were to having it be a two-way street, not the old school of the coach tells you what to do, you just shake your head and go. But it was very much, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, let's try it for two weeks, and then, as we've spoken about on this podcast, it depends, and finding what works for that athlete. Now, with that younger age comes the challenge of many of us that want to go pro get into cycling at a young age. So for example, in Pittsburgh, Team Sidious was founded by Mark Bedell, uh, another cycling coach, and Fred Goh, and their target were uh, essentially kids. So we're talking about individuals who have been riding bikes, racing bikes, probably for four to six years by the time they turned 16, 17, uh, if not three to four years. I had one of my first clients, actually, was uh, uh, 16, and he was very interested in going professional uh, for cyclists coming from a skiing background, and we, we got him quite far, uh, and then he decided he wanted to do something else. He also was an Eagle Scout. That was my first uh, public presentation that was non-coaching, and that was uh, a wonderful Uh, presentation to be there and a part of it. So Drew, I'm proud of you if you're listening to this out there. Uh, I've been following you and he's now working uh, in in the industry as they call it, Uh, another industry. So back on track here. When we talk about uh, these kids essentially, and we do need to keep in mind they are kids, we're talking about individuals who are going through anatomical adaptation. Uh, Also they're going to go through a little bit of hypertrophy. They're at this point in their lives where we can literally change the trajectory of their professional career by teaching them good strength training habits and how to balance it throughout the season. So we're going to start with the first obstacle that we have, and this is one of the most common uh, questions that I've been getting from coaches of professional cyclists. Let's give an example. Uh, for example, our rider left from uh, home and then in the beginning of February raced in Belgium and then at the end of February tra- traveled over to Spain, uh, sorry, Italy, raced in Italy for a little bit and then came back to Belgium, roast most of the strade most uh, for the most part of March. They had a break for training for about two and a half to four weeks. I'm just using a couple different examples of what was emailed to me. Uh, then they took most of April... Followed by uh, altitude camp or team camp, depending on what this athlete was doing. Um, then they had two blocks of the World Tour uh, in May to July. Again, two different examples being matched together. And during this time, we organized a training camp for them to prepare for these in the middle. Uh, let's see. And then they were talking about uh, getting ready for Worlds, for time trials, as well as for World Road. So. This is a culmination or a a concoction of about three different emails I'm getting from forward-thinking coaches. So first of all, kudos to you because you're thinking ahead. You're you're thinking about the athlete's obstacles. You're going through that process, which I kind of zoomed through in the Strength Training for Cycling Success course, um, but I get in more detail in the assessment part for Strength Training for Cycling Certification course as to you have to look at the athlete's demands and think about their season. So the best part of this is is that even though this is a concoction of three different emails that I just threw together here, they all come down to the same question. And it boils down to, so how do we fit anatomical adaptation, hypertrophy, strength, and race specification into our window of having this athlete from the end or beginning of September until February? And the answer is, you don't. You can't. That's the whole point of having these training years laid out and understanding the different phases you have to go through. So that's our first tackle for today. And I know we're about seven and a half eight minutes in and we kind of went through a lot of different stuff, but bear with me here because this is really important. And this is where even though as endurance sport coaches, we really think ahead about the athletes needs. Uh, And I see this or saw this rather a lot when I was coaching basketball in the middle school and high school level. Back, way back when, uh, it was a challenge because a lot of coaches, when we would talk about their training programs, they didn't think further than two weeks. You know, they knew that preseason, they do a lot of running, but they didn't really have an annual training plan. So as endurance coaches and athletes, we have great annual training programs. But as I cover in the certification course, which will be released here, uh, is key that we can't think, we have to think about the full year. We need to work backwards from where we ultimately want to be, but we need to be much more flexible. And we actually need to do our programming in 60 to 90 day chunks. So if we know, so for example, we had uh, Esther Meizels, who was uh, a professional rider with us, Uh, raced over in Europe, raced in the United States, in California, um, raced in Europe again. Um, So what did we do for her strength training once she was abroad? Number one is body weight, bands, and once she had a a home base, essentially, kettlebells. And that was it. Because for her to get to a gym was a lot of energy, she had to ride. Uh, So she was actually in Belgium, so that meant that she had to ride, or sorry, Netherlands, which means she had to ride to the gym and ride back. And when you're racing so much, we have to remember that it's still stress. The strength training is still stress. There's life stress. There's travel stress which a lot of coaches, I think, with up-and-coming uh, professional riders forget about. Is that stress? So we actually look at the time that we have the athlete. We can't fit all of these different phases in. We have anatomical adaptation. Well, first and foremost is transition. They have to have at least 7 to 14 days of not doing anything. I go out of my way to connect with that athlete and figure out how I can give them permission or confirm with them that taking 7 to 14 days off the bike completely and being essentially a couch potato is okay. Now, the thing is, is that with the individuals, they never wind up being a couch potato. Most of them wind up going bowling or spending time with their family going hiking. They're just active people. But I tell them, you are forbidden from throwing a leg over your top tube of your primary mode of racing for the next week. No. No road bike, no time trial bike. Whatever your primary mode of racing is you're not allowed to, to put your, your leg over the bar, the top tube. A lot of them look at me like I'm crazy, like, but I'm going to lose fitness. Exactly. You're supposed to lose fitness. This is the time of year that you are meant to digest. You're allowing the parasympathetic nervous system to rest and digest. We need that. You have to have that. Remember our four pillars of athletic progression. You have to have that. So we don't even go into anatomical adaptation like we do with the amateur riders. And those of you who have listened to a couple of the podcasts here, if they've been released or not, talking about uh, the base period of year and developing the aerobic engine, we talk about the transition. And some people you can go right into the weight room and start with anatomical adaptation, bodyweight exercises, light sets of 12 to 15, having them starting to learn their movements that's okay. That is fine. But when it comes to our professional riders, we have to remember that we need to give them at least seven days to decompress. Now, if they are a new professional, it tends to be that they want to go ride, especially if they didn't have a good season, and you have to pull the reins back. If things didn't go as they wanted to, or the um, the director sportif lets them know that they're disappointed, the type of athletes that go professional in cycling are very intrinsically motivated. They're there not just for others but much more so for themselves so we have to pull the rain backs and give them very specific directives do not ride your primary that doesn't mean they're not going mountain biking or cyclocross but we also give them or I give them at least you cannot or should not hit a heart rate above for example 155 unless it is life or death and I'm not talking about life or death because you want to win the the $50 bet of the town sign sprint I'm talking about there's a car in front of you or behind you and god forbid you need to move quickly then you can of course move, but the rest of it should be easy peasy, people are passing you, Um, but you should feel fast and you should feel like the the Kentucky Derby winner being pulled back at the reins uh, even though you feel like you want to push. Because now is the time, if you've played your cards right, the athlete should be mostly recovered but we need to give them that mental recovery from that pressure. So so let's say you give them seven days and they're getting antsy. Okay, we're going to start the anatomical adaptation. We're going to go about two weeks for this individual, two to three weeks. Uh, let's say they're 18 years old. It's their first season back from Europe. A couple minor crashes, you know, aches, aches and pains. Uh, maybe they had a couple stitches because they fell, but no concussions, no nothing like that. So we don't need to worry too, too much about getting deep recovery. And that's a whole nother uh, podcast episode. Remind me, those of you who want that, write me and remind me to do that because it's not in the queue right now. But if there's interest, I will make it for this fall as opposed to next. Okay, once we've gone through that, seven days, let's say, and they're really ready to go, we'll start anatomical adaptation. I generally like to do this uh, as a part of light weights. So before they go to Europe, we usually know, unless you're in the rare position where an athlete comes to and they're, you know, kind of like, hey, I've kind of been self-coached, I've had really good results, my parents and I saved up, or I saved up to go to Europe to try and have a go at it, or I got picked up by the juniors development camp at uh, USA Cycling, whatever it may be. Usually we have a run-up of about six to eight months. Like we kind of know the athlete's going down that road, right? So we should have been doing already a little bit of of weight training. Let's say we haven't. And remember, if you know an athlete's going down that road and you can tell that it's going to be beneficial for them to go to Europe next year, don't hold back on the strength training. Strength training is a year-round thing. And this is part of the answer to the question. So let's say they didn't start. Let's say we just kind of, the athlete had an exceptional season, took a couple of podiums, uh, excelled. They were being uh, coached by someone else or self-coached, and now they're coming to you. So number one is anatomical adaptation. Let's start them out learning the movements. We want about 30-minute sessions. We're going to start off with five minutes, three to five minutes of soft tissue work. Then we're going to do a little breath work. Then we're going to do, yes, you got it, dynamic warm-up. Right there is half of our session. Ten to 12 minutes, easy, right there. Now, the next 15 to 18 minutes for the rest of the session, and there's a reason we keep it this short, We are working on the primary movement pattern number one that the athlete has issues with for a lot of cyclists it's going to be an overhead motion so we'll do something like a a landmine press uh, or we'll do something that's going to aid them to get better movement uh, from the landmine press and then we're going to do a hinge pattern so this usually i like uh, hover kettlebell deadlifts because it's teaching from the top down or double hover kettlebell deadlifts and the reason is simple we're able to get 6 to 12 repetitions, we're going at a nice tempo. Uh, we'll use a little bit of tempo, so maybe not three one three one, but we'll go like 2 to 4 seconds negative, pause for a second, and then 2 seconds up. We want to teach the athlete its control and stiffness at the places that we want that we're after. Then once we finish that, we're going to go about I don't know, we're going to say f- three weeks, two to three weeks of anatomical adaptation. So once we finish the hinge and the press, we're still going to work on push, by the way, and this is neglected by a lot of coaches. We are in a reaching position on our bike oftentimes, and that means we need to teach the athlete how to properly press, horizontally press, the overhead press, the vertical press, we're not really going to get into, um, but the horizontal push, we need to teach the athlete how to stabilize, how to, how to be able to manage that position, so that means we're going to do like Blackburns, so if you look at the HV Training YouTube channel, you'll be able to find that. Uh, And we'll do wall scap slides or something of that nature, whatever the athlete needs. So that's about two to three weeks for anatomical adaptation. Then we're going to take them into hypertrophy. During these two to three weeks, we want the athlete to leave the strength training session saying that they can and want to do more. And we need to teach them to reserve that energy. We are building a reservoir of energy. We are restocking everything. And this is a big challenge for a lot of riders who go to the world tour the first year. Um, usually you're doing a lot of riding. I mean, you know, we're talking about pinning on a number and, and racing, you know, between 45 and 60 days a year. A lot of beginners are probably gonna be between 45 and 50. That's a lot of racing days, that's a lot of training stress, and we need to refill the reservoirs. And if you're if you want a first person account, check out the book by Charlie Wigellius called Domestique. Regardless of what you think about him uh, as a writer, the book is a really, really, really great insight as to what it's like as a professional writer. Granted, it was written at the beginning of the 2000s, and Team Sky has changed a lot of things. Um, he wrote for Liquigas at a time that Liquigas was the original Team Sky. Like Liquigas is the first team that actually had money put into it, where they started having nice buses, staying at nicer restaurants, and then Team Sky took that and elevated it you know, five more levels. And now that's kind of become more of a standard for the professional writers. Read that book and read about how drained he was at the end of his first season. Like, he didn't even want to look at his bike. We want to refill our athletes, teach them new challenges, challenge them in new ways, and allow them to see that hey, you may be getting really good at the bike, but there's a lot more you have to learn here, uh, and you can get better at that. So, we're going to balance that. Then, the hypertrophy stage that's going to be most of the time they're going to be with you. So, we're already down a month. We have three and a half to four and a half months with this athlete before they fly abroad again, unless you have a base in Europe, uh, in which case you can see the athlete. But even then, maybe the athlete is going from town to town or country to country where they're not really staying put. They don't have access to a lot of equipment. This is one of the reasons why we have the muscular hypertrophy stage uh, that's going to be the majority with you. We want you to be able to coach the athlete. We're talking about five to 15 repetitions. This is where, you know, 10 to 15 is where most cyclists think they're doing endurance work, which is complete BS. We've covered that in the five stages of of strength adaptation, which was posted before this. And the thing is, the hypertrophy stage is a lot of fun for the athletes because then they start to see that, hey, you know, especially for the first time, if it's their first year, as we spoke about in, again, previous uh, episodes, we're talking about the athlete going up and up and up and up. Episode 19, we'll have talked about that, We're talking about the athlete comes in at 35 kilos for a front squat, then 42 kilos the next week, and then 55 kilos the week after that. And they're thinking, oh, you're the best coach ever. And you're very honest with them, say, no, you are an athlete. You know your body best. You're creating, uh, you're producing stiffness at the place that you need to in order to produce motion at the places that you need to. And this is neurological adaptation. This is your body figuring it out. So this is a huge boost. And for a lot of individuals who are coming back from their first year in the professional peloton it's a huge boost to their confidence that they you know especially if they had a bad year they're going to feel a lot better about themselves they're going to be like I can do this and for some of our riders who tend to be a lot more introverted and not really connect with us as coaches even though we're doing the best we can this can be you you can tell they're looking forward to the strength training exercises or the sessions with you or on their own and that allows you to really make a connection and boost their confidence and build them up for next year and this is paramount so this is going to be between I'd like for the professional cyclist six to, to eight weeks. Why only six to eight? Why don't we go a little bit longer? We can go up to 12. Well, number one, they're at the professional level. So we do want to be careful uh, about the energy systems that we're using in the weight room, as well as how much weight, especially if we have uh, riders who are pegged to be climbers or are natural climbers. We need to be very cog- cognizant of this and conscientious of how much hypertrophy we are causing. So it's not that we don't want any. If they're, if they're Relative watts per kilo are coming up with what they're doing in the weight room. Totally cool, bro or bro or broette. Like, that's okay. We want that. If their relative numbers are coming up, but their absolute are dropping or staying stale, then we have a problem. And we have a big problem if they're a uh, climber. So we need to be very aware of what we're doing in the weight room. And that means we're going to do more programming toward the neurological side uh, as opposed to the metabolic side. Uh, and we'll get into this at the end. We're going to tie that all together and we'll talk about the energy systems. But we do cover this in the Strength Training for Cycling Certification uh, quite a bit because it's a continuum. There is no crossing. Either you're doing neurological work or you're doing metabolic work and you need to be careful with your professionals, especially as they get closer to race season or peak season. Now, we've gone through in a Tom Cloud. We went through a week off seven to fourteen days off, then we went through anatomical adaptations for two to three weeks, that's our first month. Then we have hypertrophy, let's say eight weeks, that's three months. Now the last four weeks, four to six weeks that you're going to have the athlete for, between three and a half to four and a half months you have the athlete. Now we're going to get into max strength. So max strength is going to be our opportunity to really allow the athlete to tie things together and for us to be able to see some of the weaknesses or the cracks that they may have when they get into the season as they travel. So. The max strength, remember, you are working with a professional. They are getting paid to ride their bike. You are going to allow them to have some deviation that goes a little bit further along that spectrum than the amateur athlete because it is their job. It is their livelihood. And because of that, you also need to be really smart. This is going to mean you need to really dial in to that athlete's abilities to recover tissue tissue resiliency And really understand the nervous system and read the athlete on that day, at that time in front of you. You need to be very careful with this. And it's always better to leave some gas on the tank than to go, oh, crap. You don't want to have an oh, crap. You don't want to do that. So if you're ever unsure, err on the side of one less rep or one less set. Leave a little bit in the tank. It's going to allow the athlete to be more resilient. It's almost always, no, it is always better to leave them in the tank than to go too far and the athletes soar or beat up. We don't want that. So the max strength, four to six weeks. That means we're probably, if they're there for four weeks, we're probably going to keep the same programming and then we're going to ramp them up just a little bit towards the end. And then the travel week, the week we know that they're flying, I generally like to have them one to two days before they fly is when we're going to do their last strength workout. And a lot of them are already going to be focused on the bike and they're going to want to go out for the long rides. Why do I like that one big last one? is it allows you to make that connection with the athlete, uh, reinforce the patterns they've had, as well as give them one last, and you tell them this, we're giving one last kick to that energy system, uh, or not the energy system, to the nervous system rather, not the energy system, because you're going to get so much energy system work as it is when you're racing. And then they're going to fly the week that they fly. So let's say they fly on Friday, just to make this easier. Tuesday or Wednesday, I want them in the gym for a heavy session. And we're going to tell them, you're going to do a, you know a nice endurance ride uh, after for about an hour, recovery ride, and we're really going to push in the gym. We're not going to do anything stupid, but we're going to do some of the heavier weights that we've done. We're going to go based off of your technique, and we're going to feel good by the time we leave here. And we're going to make sure it fits you and what your needs are. So when they're done with that, uh, before they leave, I like to do one more, depending on how early in the race, or how early in the season they're going to race. So if they're doing the, the spring classics, like the Strada, we'll do some VO2 max for all outs. Just kind of want to see what they're they're like before they leave, and then when they get to where they're going, and this varies widely, it depends on the athlete, sometimes I like to have them do three to five days of easier riding, just because of the travel stress, we don't know what the living situation is going to be like, are they going to get along with their teammates, are they housed with someone they were with last year, are they in the same room, or is something else going on? And don't underestimate that. Like the roommate who they're with, there's a lot of factors that are very stressful. So because of that, I tend to err on the side of caution uh, and allow them a little bit of an easier in, unless they are racing that week. In which case, we're going to do the same workout before they left, but they're going to have very clear guidelines as to the VO2 max or the all out or whatever it may have been when to cut it. So when their power drops by X or if their HRV is Y they're going to either skip the session, they're going to do one or two, or they're going to have a very clear guideline as to when to cut it. Now, when it comes to strength training, they're going to do movement sessions. We, need, we don't need development once they start racing. We need stimulation. That's it. When you're in season, we're going to pretty much not be doing super, super heavy uh, weights. That doesn't mean they're not going to. If they are at a home base, so they are in, let's say, Eindhoven, Netherlands, and they know that they can get to the gym in 15 minutes and their bike is safe to be locked up, or maybe the gym staff lets them bring it in, we're going to do probably once a week minimum heavy weight lifting within reason. And heavy is relative. And you have to remember when you take that stimulus away, especially for deadlifts and squats, we're not going to do any good for the athlete. So that's where uh, we need to make sure that we're allowing them to have enough stimulation for these heavier lifts that will allow them to progress, but not so much that, due to the tissue changes in their sport demands that's going to put them at the risk for injury. So what they may have been doing before they left with you. Let's say they sumo deadlifted off plates, 90 kilos. When they are beginning the season, that can be 85 or 80. When we get into after the Spring Classics, getting into June, that could be 70. Like, think about that that's that's pretty much a 32 percent drop-off in what's considered heavy for them this is where rated perceived exertion is important you have to abide by this and that perceived exertion started with you before they left so back when you start the hypertrophy the anatomical adaptation you're teaching them the perceived exertion because remember the tissues are going to change to the primarily the primary excuse me stresses that are placed on it We don't want them to be able to lift heavy things extremely well if they're a professional during the season, but they do need to have that stimulus. So we want a perceived exertion of about a 7 for their last set, and they're going to do roughly 3 or 4 sets, depending on their time. And because we want a neurological adaptation, we're talking about a set of 6, or a set of 8 as warm-up, a set of 6, a set of 4, a set of 3. That's it. And the last one is an a, a, a RP of 7, maybe 7.5 for deadlifts off of blocks, let's say. So they're not going through the full range of motion. If their technique is off or they don't feel good, then they bring the blocks higher or they bring the weights down lower. That's something that's going to be very individual for the athlete. And then as you get into their peak part of the year, and this is where it's tough for professionals. Some of them are going to wind up racing races that they never thought they were going to race. Say that three times fast. Like This is something we have to keep in mind. Sometimes they're not going to be slated to ride, but because someone gets injured or they're riding a specific way or they're strong for a particular uh, type of feature, uh, they are going to be called on. And this is where the strength training is once or twice a week, 30 minutes maximum, because we really want to remember that our goal for them is adaptation and recovery in that order. They need to be able to adapt through the racing that they're doing, and this is where some of the old pros will call it uh, racing yourself into fitness. There is something to be said for that. But the other part is adapting, and that requires hormonal balance, as we talked about the four pillars of uh, athletic progression, neuromuscular, cardiorespiratory, metabolic, and hormonal. All of those need to be together to allow the athlete to progress. So strength training is going to take a back seat. Now, what if you don't have a home base? The athlete is in their first year and the team is zigzagging them across Europe. Or maybe they're going to the Tour Down Under and then coming back to Europe. What do you do then? Number one, life stress and training stress and... Travel stress. You have to remember all of this. Make sure you gauge where your athlete is not just based off of power numbers and heart rate but also by talking to them. So this could be a text message, it could be voice messages, it could be a phone call, it could be Skype, it depends on what the athlete prefers. It could be an email. Some athletes don't really communicate with you and that makes it a lot harder. That's where you need to talk with the director of sportif or figure out how to best manage this athlete while they're away from you because they tend not to talk as much. They don't like technology perhaps. You don't have a home base? Cool. We're going to use bands. We're going to use TRX. Now, the thing is, a lot of people with TRX are going to tell you, oh, get it into the most challenging um, position as possible or go until it burns. No, 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 no. no. We need to be very, very aware of the metabolic stresses we're placing on this athlete. If they need help boosting their lactate threshold abilities, let's say they feel during their time trial that their upper body's getting very tired, which for an athlete who doesn't have a strong midsection may be a possibility, or if they're pulling on the bars too much, we may need to do... T-Rex style, like we talked about in episode nineteen or twenty, uh, we need we may need to do some metabolic strength training, which means we're going to be doing some tempo work. But we need to be aware of what muscles we're working on, what energy systems. Uh, This is where I really like Inside. Uh, It allows you to really tap into the athlete's uh, energy systems and see what's going on. But at that level, you're playing at that level, you are literally playing with an athlete's career, especially in cycling. It can be very short. We're talking two-year contracts, super fierce, lots of people trying to come up. So you need to be on your ball, the balls of your feet for that. So be on the ball for this. A little bit less is more. But you should be doing at minimum, at minimum, if you're afraid to screw up the athlete's uh, energy systems or you're afraid to hurt them because it's your first year, start with three to four times a week, ten-minute dynamic movement sessions. This is where you go through five, uh, three to five minutes of soft tissue work. If they're with a good professional team, if they're at the world tour level, they have swollen nerves, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, I can't ever pronounce that properly, but that's what I said. Um, and they'll go through some movements and the movements are going to be essentially strength training exercises that are going to mitigate their weaknesses and allow them to continue and that's going to depend so i'm not going to give any examples of that so that's the end of their their max strength that's it and if you think about it it's not really max strength we're barely doing anything we're in the gym if they have access to one or they have a home base once a week twice maximum and it's only thirty minutes it's not that much time The time to get to and from is much more, and the reason we keep it down to a half-hour session is we want them soft tissue work, three to five minutes, dynamic, five to eight minutes, get in your uh, A's and B's. If you have the energy or the time or it's written for you, you do C's, and then you go home because that hour, that is an hour for most of these athletes to get to and from the gym and to get a half-hour work in it. That's all we want. It's energy management. And remember, training is efficient when the least amount of energy and the least amount of time is being spent in, in order to evoke the desired response. That's what we're after, the least amount of time. And if you don't have access to a gym, TRX, bands, I'm not a huge, huge fan of body weight, but we'll use it if that's all we have, or the athlete loses the bands, or they break, but usually it'll be like a hip loop, a medium to light band for the knees, uh, and then we'll do something like a two and a four inch band. So they have four bands that they take with them. Um, if they have a home base, we'll do a kettlebell that's moderate uh, enough that they can do upper body. Um, and then if they need it, we'll do a heavy enough for lower body. Uh, but it really depends on what the athletes needs. The race specialization... That's going to come... You'll know that ahead of time, usually. The director sportif will tell you, hey, this is going to be your primary race for this year. This is what you're going to do, especially for the world tour. These guys and women know well in advance what race they're preparing for. Like, they know that the the end of the year, they know that in in September what they're racing for. Um, So, and the race specialization will be cutting down. You're doing two to three dynamic movement sessions, and it's just getting enough stimulation for them. And then during the world tour your energy management and they may not get much strength training at all and every team has a different approach for this um i haven't been at that level yet i i plan on being there uh in the very near future uh working with some of those athletes on the world tour but i can tell you if i were there knowing what i know now and let's be honest about it i'm gonna say that i probably don't know shit for shad about that If it is what I think it is, based upon what I've seen, you know, seeing the Giro d'Italia here uh, for the start, uh, seeing the Tour de France three years ago, uh, and paying attention to what the teams are doing, I would venture to guess we're talking like two to four exercises mostly focused on rotary stability, mostly at the beginning, unless they're having some aches or pains, and even then most of it's going to be allowing the athlete to recover. That is a guess, and I'm probably wrong. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you like, oh yeah, just do this, this, and that. I can't stand that about people. If you don't actually have experience there, don't, don't tell me with certainty. Be honest. Say, I think this is what it would be like, but I'm probably wrong. So I think this is what it would be like, but I'm probably wrong. Um, and I'd be interested. If any of you are athletes or riders at that level, share with me. Send me an email, uh, brody, B as a boy, R-O-D as a dog, I-E, at humanvortextraining.com. Or you can hit me on Instagram, at HVtraining, and tell me. What is it like during the world tour or those long two-week or 10-day races? What does your strength training look like, if anything? Does your team even believe in it? Do they discourage you from it? Uh, let me know what you think. We're going to return after this short little intermission. We're going to talk about programming and how to accomplish this for professionals because a lot of people feel the need in each one of these uh, several emails I received, They're really trying to focus in and do too much in one program. So we're going to talk about that after the break.
0: Want to learn more? Check out HumanVortexTraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest.
1: Alright, welcome back to part two. I know part one was a little bit long and it seemed, uh, you know, I'm listening back to it, uh, back through it to, to edit it a little bit and it seems... At first, when you listen to it, there's a lot of things I kind of repeat, but there's a reason for that. I, I specifically wanted to pull out certain things, so I'm going to make it very simple for you here as we begin part two. Number one, you cannot jam a full year's worth of training planning or training program into three and a half to four and a half months. That's like having a cyclist come to you and you say, whoa, you're a professional cyclist. We're going to do all of your training from September until February, and then you're only going to uh, ride your bike when you really have to at that point. And some coaches will do that. Some coaches do do that. They just say, go, you know, we're going to do really heavy training load and then you're going to race yourself into fitness and you're going to recover in between. Not really assigned to that, but you can't do that with strength training. You're removing the training stimulus. Um, so maybe a better uh, comparison would be okay, you're doing all of your training between September and February and then you're not doing anything at all uh, until next September. And that's what most cyclists do with strength training, but that's incorrect. That's not what we want. That's not how we're going to make you a fitter, faster, stronger, more resilient cyclist. What we actually need as to build your training year, knowing we can get anatomical adaptation, hypertrophy, maximum strength, all in those three and a half to four and a half months, or three to four and a half months that you have at home before you fly out again to Europe, or down under, or to the States, to California, or whenever that season starts. You can get, ana- and should be getting, anatomical adaptation, hypertrophy, and at least four weeks of maximum strength in. And then from there, it's essentially maintenance and race-specific strength. And uh, the sport conversion, I should say, rather. So after the maximum strength, it's sport conversion. And that's pretty much why it's built that way. That's why Tudor Bompa in the book Periodization wrote it that way, is because that's what most athletes have. You've got about, and, and professional basketball players, by the way, a lot of people think that it's easier. They're like, oh, yeah, working with cyclists must be really, um, really hard after working with uh, professional basketball players. Actually, pro basketball players, if they, if they make it to the final or the semifinals, we only have like two months to get them up and running. And then they're out there and they're practicing four to six days a week and playing. So it's actually a lot harder to train professional basketball players uh, than it is for an amateur basketball players than it is for cyclists, believe it or not. Because for cycling, we have a pretty good idea. We can look at the the topography, um, the winds, the weather conditions, uh, past years' performances from uh, the Peloton, especially now with power, and we can pretty much get a good estimate of what the training stress is going to be and and mitigate for that. Whereas with a professional basketball player, you never know. There's one player that I've I've worked with here. He didn't really get more than four or five minutes throughout the season. Uh, Playoffs came. They changed coaches, I think, right before the playoffs or in the playoffs. He wound up dropping, I think, like 38 or 39 points and playing all but two minutes in one of the semifinal games. Like, and that's from not playing all season. So here we have a player who can lift hard three days a week throughout the season and get some conditioning stuff in as well to make sure he's ready. But then during the, the playoffs, it was like, dude, you need to, like, calm down. We're doing, like, one strength training session a week maybe, but you're definitely doing two movement sessions to keep you moving well, and we're not doing any conditioning. Uh, and they played well. I mean, and, and, and he's really moved up because of that. But it's hard. Like, you and professional soccer players, same thing. You only got, like, six to eight weeks max with these guys and and women, it's not easy. With professional cyclists, we're pretty much guaranteed three and a half to four months out of the year, unless they're traveling for some reason. So, those are the two big take homes. Number one, you cannot jam pack a whole year's worth of strength training into three and a half months. You can, however, set a foundation so that when they leave you, they're transferring over to sport specific strength. But in the early part of the season, like February, when they're doing those harder spring races, that's actually from a physiological perspective. And again, I haven't worked with enough professional cyclists that are racing those races yet to say this with 100% certainty. Yet yeah, it, it'll happen. It'll happen the next couple years, and I'll probably come back and say, hey, I was wrong. But from a physiological and stress-on-the-body perspective with what I know now, my programming would be something along the lines of half hour, just what we talked about, half hour, Three to five minutes off tissue work, targeted, so we're not doing whole body, we're doing very targeted, eight to ten minutes dynamic warm up, and then we're doing A1, B1, uh, A1, A2, B1, B2, that's it. And B2 is probably going to be a rotary stability of some kind with anterior uh, uh, challenge, rotary challenge, like a double kettlebell uh, front rack walk or a farmer's carry, and then A1 would be whatever their biggest weakness is or the biggest area that they're going to need, that's it, and that would be twice a week. And I would say with the spring classics, from what I've seen from the riders I have worked with, is that this is reasonable, but not always possible. Sometimes it's, we're going to get one session, and we're going to do soft tissue work, dynamic warm-up, A1, A2, B1, and that's it. But we're still keeping a little bit of training stress, and it's neurological. So we're really paying attention to how much we are or are not challenging the metabolic systems. Now I haven't talked about that too much here Uh, when we release, I think it will be before this, episode 19 and 20 perhaps, uh, if we do the aerobic base uh, building with strength training, we'll talk about how you can and should use different training factors as you go through to build that athlete. And we talked about the four pillars again, neuromuscular, hormonal, metabolic, and cardiorespiratory. You can work on each of these a little bit differently, but we want to avoid the training monotony. This is where a lot of people get into overreaching or overtraining, uh, and then they burn out in the middle of the winter. And they say, oh, it's just the winter. I just don't want to get on the trainer. I don't want to suffer. There's definitely a mental aspect to not wanting to get onto the trainer and suffer. We all go through that. If you don't, uh, you're probably lying, or you just came back from somewhere that had a super inspiring terrain that was warm and nice, or maybe you've seen the huge gains from the trainer. I mean, Andy and Samson, Samson hated the trainer, but... Uh, When we were working through the first couple years, he's like, I do it because I saw the results and I know that I'm going to be so much better from doing this. Uh, And Andy really took to it. He's like, I just, you know, it just makes me better than other people because they're not willing to suffer as much. And he was one of the first riders I worked with. uh, And this was early. And this was all Andy. I had nothing to do with this. But he picked up a LeMond uh, trainer, an axle-driven trainer, when the biggest craze was a flywheel trainer, the magnetic trainer. Uh, and he was early on that because he recognized the, f- the feel was much better. It's a flywheel-driven uh, resistance trainer. Those were back in the 80s and early 90s. They were proper, uh, properly uh, uh, popular. rather, And that's why uh, they're called Lamont, because that's what he made. And now they're coming back into vogue with the Wahoo and Kicker and everything like that. Um, but for most of us, we want to have that balance of strength training. We need to have that balance of stre- strength training. But we need to be aware that when you're doing sets essentially over five... And especially, especially taking short rest periods. And this is something that at the beginning of my my career strength training cyclists used to drive me crazy. I'm now at the point where I'm like, it's not their fault. They don't understand what we're actually after. A lot of people think you pick up the weight, go as hard as you can, get out of breath, and then keep going. And there are tons of personal trainers out there who are doing exactly this. Oh, you're a cyclist, you need more endurance. No, they don't. You're already getting so much freaking endurance out on the bike, unless you're being... Uh, a total Fred, and I will say that because I was one of them where I'm pedaling, pedal, pedal, and then coast, coast, coast. And then pedal, 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 coast, coast, coast. We spoke in previous episodes about how I gave Andy the assignment of, dude, you're riding a triple and you're going to keep your cadence above 100 all winter, no matter what the terrain, triple. And he got made fun of, and he had a breakthrough year because we were training the nervous system. And that's what I kept telling him. We're training the nervous system. We want to see a nice, smooth power file. And over the course of the winter, it is amazing. It looked like a little brick road instead of spiky like the uh, voice files I have here in most of your training files that you have at home. And this takes a lot of practice. It's a different type of training stress. And going into the gym and just simply winding yourself and pushing yourself as hard as you can, you're now doing another metabolic workout. You're doing an energy system workout. You can kid yourself and tell yourself that you're making yourself stronger. Maybe you are. Maybe you're making the local uh, or used muscles to be stronger to go for that period of time. But you're placing more training stress on yourself, just like you're already getting on the bike six, at least six hours a week. We want to balance it. We want neuromuscular adaptations. We don't want metabolic, not yet at least. We are laying the foundation. That means you need to rest between three and four minutes in between your sets and slow down your repetitions. There are so many cyclists and triathletes are even worse, where they're going too fast. So this is the second question that I got, is how hard should it be for my athletes um, during this time that I have them at home? How hard should these workouts be? Uh, one specifically says, do I want them crawling out of the gym? Another from another coach asks, um, should it be where they, they kind of feel like they haven't really done much except for the the Specific set itself, uh, and the other says, "I have no idea. I just know that I've been giving them sets of 10 to 15, uh, which is total hypertrophy work." And I now understand from your course it isn't really true. And I kind of knew that, you know, from looking at my athletes. I'm like, "There's got to be a better way." Thus, I took your course, uh, Training Peaks University. So the answer is, is that this is kind of like a conjugate method. So the conjugate method, uh, Louis Simmons is a really popular powerlifting coach. If you want to read stuff and really go down the rabbit hole for strength training, pick up his books. They're expensive. They're about a hundred bucks a pop, but he's one of the best out there to do it. Now he's training with powerlifters, and you need to remember that. Now powerlifters, just like Olympic weightlifters, and a lot of people don't realize this, are very wary about their weight because we are divided by weight class. And this is how I really went went down the rabbit hole of really strength training, not just Working out and lifting weights. So I went from you know sneaking into the weight room at the age of 12, 13, and reading Men's Health and um, and uh, Muscle and Fitness or Muscle and Fiction, as I like to call it now, and a bunch of other stuff, uh, and just sneaking into the, the weight room and doing stuff, uh, into working out with my friends in middle school and high school, uh, and then at the end or middle of, of of high school, at grade ten, I got into actual powerlifting. And I thought you're just going to pick up stuff and get as big as you can. And my coach was like, No, it's all you know. You want to think about your weight and what your numbers are, and you want to stay within that weight class because you don't want to have to drop weight too much. A lot of people forget this, so that's a book that you should definitely pick up. Now, when it comes to the actual programming, uh, this is where we have to tell our athletes, number one is slow down. We're not looking just to pop up and down out of the squats as fast as you can. We want sarcolemic hypertrophy, where the actual contractile fibers that increase strength allow us to be able to get stronger, connective tissue strength, the fascia, the, the tendons, everything. And we also want to have stiffness and control through the movement. So this is where we like to use tempo. So that one will definitely be released before this one is. So I think this is going to be number 21 or 22 uh, depending on on how things go here. But essentially what we're looking for is we want to teach the athletes to slow down and go through the movement in a good fashion. So this is where the sets of five we're gonna get a more neuromuscular and hypertrophy response and getting time under tension and then as you go through this with the programming uh... the thing is is that you know the other thing that all of these coaches ask for can you give us some more sample p- programs uh, the thing is y- yes and no if you're asking for more sample programs and I, I really mean this go back and look through watch through the dynamic warmup watch through the core or the, the mid the, the big bulk of the training session watch those modules again the strength training for cycling success course because I give you everything you need. The sample programs aren't going to do too much for you. The sample program that was in there took hours to put together, because it's trying to teach you through something simple. And this is where three of those uh, emails, the coaches mean well, and and I'm not calling you out. I'm I'm saying that this is a mistake all of us make, because I made the same mistake when I first started this. Twelve years ago, eleven years ago almost, sorry, when I first started working specifically with cyclists and triathletes, I made the same mistake, A, B, C, D, E, F. I was doing F, guys. I was doing five. Five! Five pairs of exercises. So, that you know, they say I want to work on push-pull, squat, hinge, press, rotary, stability, while, while keeping it simple. Um, and we're going to do two to three days a week. Uh, and we have five sets of exercises. Uh, a, B, C, D, E. No, no, no. No, and and each one of them, what's, what's very, I think, telling, is each one of these sample programs that they sent over all had some type of rotary stability and a regular front plank. You don't need to do both. Choose one. You don't need to do both. You need to teach the athlete how to move differently. So just popping in the front planks because they're they're familiar with it can actually derail your progress with this athlete because you're trying to teach them new movement patterns, how to move better. So we need to take that out. We need to think about that. That's number one. Number two is think less is more. When we talk about keeping it simple, we're talking about essentially when we're doing two days a week we want a full body routine When we're doing three days a week we can do a full body with a focus a little bit more on where their weak parts are i wouldn't do four days a week with a professional cyclist in the strength uh, department unless they had major issues like we're talking itb syndrome uh, major arch issues back issues and even then two of those days are going to be stimulation one of them is going to be a development we're really pushing heavy weights um excuse me and then the other one is going to depend on where the athlete is for that week and, and in their training block. But we only need A, B, A, B, C. That's it. All the rest, a lot of the, the corrective stuff that, that uh, I also included, I'm not saying just the coaches that are emailing me, some of the some of you, some of the athletes out there emailing me. It's not just you. I made the same mistake. Well, there are better ways to use our time, and there are ways that we can get a continued, repeated exposure to these quote-unquote correctives. And had uh, a couple people over the last year have sent me these emails with their programs asking me to kind of, uh, you, can you just give me one or two pointers as what to do? And they have literally 12 or 13 corrective exercises. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, this looks familiar because when I first started, I wrote the same thing. I did 12, 13 correctives, and we have like 10 minutes for strength training. I've called myself out on it here on the podcast in the past. A lot of the correctives choose the two or three that are going to be really beneficial for this athlete. They're going to help address, re help them learn or relearn movement patterns. Put that into the dynamic warm-up. And then the end of the dynamic warm-up should be preparing them for that day's session, depending on what they have. But we don't need A, B, C, D, E. A, B, C, maximum. That's going to be the vast majority of our athletes. Rarely, rarely, unless an athlete has a lot of time on their hands where they're not employed, or maybe they're a high school kid, or maybe they're not taking college courses. Maybe, if they're getting great recovery and adaptation to their on-bike stuff, maybe we'll add in D. But that's going to be pretty rare, to be honest. And that's one of the great parts about being able to teach people and, and share with the courses and, and the certification course is I want you to get through and pass these mistakes as quickly as possible. And some athletes, it's not a mistake. Let's let's just be honest about it. Let's just be honest. Let's call it for what it is. There are going to be athletes, although they are an exception, not the rule, who do need that much corrective work because they're, they're not body aware or they're coming back from major injury and they can't really do stuff. But there's always a workaround that you can do, you know, um... There's a number of things when an athlete is injured. I have a a collarbone and broken hand program up on Training Peaks. It's not popular, but when people purchase it and they they go through it, they're like, wow, I never thought that I could get back into shape. You know, I tried to get on the bike and I just thought I wanted to have a training program. Um, And, you know, yours said collarbone, broken collarbone. I was like, oh, okay, there's a shot. And at first, I scoffed at it because it wasn't that much. But after the third week, I was feeling so much better. And by week five of the program, I just felt like I was back. Almost to where I was before I injured uh, the the body before I broke my collarbone. This is common, you know. That that's something that you can find a workaround because a lot of athletes or coaches think, oh, just get on the trainer and keep riding hard. You have to understand the healing process and what the body needs to go through, tissue wise, uh, energy system wise. De- energy demands on the b- body, you know, when I when we're talking about broken bones, that takes a lot of energy. And a lot of riders, the first couple of days are really—they—they they, they still have you know their bodies in hyperdrive because it's a fight or flight, it's a major injury. But day four, day five, after you break a bone, I'm telling you, man, you know you're you're tired, and to to push through that, your primary objective at that point is to recover. But now we're getting a little bit off topic. So when it comes down to actually getting the athlete that programming, we're talking about ABC. So don't overdo it. We're going to talk about. Uh, First is soft tissue work, three to five minutes maximum, targeted, whatever happens to need to be worked on. Um, They shouldn't spend more time than that. Then we have the dynamic warm-up. And in that dynamic warm-up, start off with the first three to four exercises or two to three exercises being the same for all three or four days a week that they're coming in and strength training. Again, four is going to be very rare, but it can happen. Uh, So those three days a week they're coming in, the first three exercises are targeting their biggest issue that they need to get. So we're getting it three days a week, not twice a week. And then from there we get three, maybe four dynamic movements that are preparing them for the specific workout for the day. And then we're doing A1, A2, resting for three minutes, repeat however many sets you have, B1, B2, rest for three to four minutes in between, however many sets you have, and then C1, C2, and then they're gone. We'll do some cool down at the end. I like to do breath work, especially if you're just beginning with me. We'll go through uh, breathing exercises. Although nowadays a lot of athletes tend to want to get on their phone and get out. It is important, especially during the season, to get that little bit of cool down. Um, that's it. So it, it really is that simple, and I think a lot of people are, are kind of losing that. You know, Now that we're starting to realize as a whole for both cyclists and triathletes, as I start to lose my voice here, uh, now that we're re- recognized as, as a whole, there are way better ways than what we've been seeing to do strength training for cycling. But the problem is, is that when it comes down to actually finding those resources, it comes down to something like this.
0: Here. Adamowski. Adamson. Here. Adler. Here. Anderson. Anderson. Here. Bueller. Bueller. Bueller? Bueller? Um, he's sick. My
1: best... We're going to stick with the Bueller thing. That's what it's like when you're looking for good strength training programs or information for cycling or triathlon online. And that's what pushed me to make these courses because it was just, you know, for lack of a better term, I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. And some of it, frankly, pissed me off. I'm like, why are we doing stuff from the 1970s and 80s when we are so much further ahead? not going to get on the soapbox today. But when it comes to planning for your professional athletes, that's what we've got. All right. So to recap for today, it was an awesome episode, wasn't it? We really covered a lot and we went into depth on some of the stuff and I I can already sense there are a couple questions that I didn't answer, uh, but I'm going to let you guys and gals contact me with those because it's going to be very specific uh, to what you or your athletes are needing. So number one, we covered at the beginning, you're not going to jam a full year of strength programming into three and a half months. You're going to get a transition. You've got to get that. I can't stress that enough, especially if your athlete's coming back and they had a great year. It's energy management. You've got to refill the reserves. You got to. You got to give them something else. You gotta. Sometimes you have to be explicit and say your heart rate is not to go above 150 beats per minute ever unless it's life or death. And if it's life or death, I want witnesses, right? Right? you got to be very explicit with them and you have to explain to them. Again, they're young. They don't have as much experience in understanding that they need to refill those energy stores because next year, especially if they have a good year, there's going to be a lot more work for them to do. It's going to be a lot more demanding. It's not going up, you know, half a level. You're going to be taken up another two levels. Expectations are higher. You're now in your second year, which means you're in a contract year, and that's a lot of pressure, and you've got to refill the mental and physical energy stores. So that's number one, 7 to 14 days off the bike, the primary type of bike that you ride or away from biking altogether. Go swimming, go hiking, go do something else. Don't put them at risk for injury. And some athletes, yes, be a couch potato for a day, uh, for a week, a week and a day. It's not going to kill you. Yeah, your top end is going to fall off. It's supposed to. And then build back up. You've got to go through that and restore the energy systems and the mental energy in particular. Then you're going to take them through hypertrophy again I'd like to do about eight weeks so we get two months there so that's that between the transition the anatomical adaptation rather is uh, about three weeks so we have uh, two weeks off anatomical adaptation at three weeks hypertrophy eight weeks we're now up to uh, three months and a week then we're gonna have essentially max strength we're gonna get at least two weeks in before they go if you're having an athlete that really is only home and this is rare they're only home for three months anatomical adaptation for two weeks unless they're brand new which case you would keep it at three hypertrophy for six and then max strength for four and that's going to fill up your three months hopefully your rider's going to be home a little bit longer than that at that point again they're going to know what their specialization for the year is uh, when they're going to go to different parts of the world for training camp uh, as well as when the team is going to have different things for the different squads that they're uh, going to be running through either recon or going to get in shape so you're going to Generally know that well in advance. Now, for the lower level professional teams, it can be willy-nilly. They shoot from the hip. Hey, so-and-so had a great race this weekend. I want you to race next weekend in the Amstel Gold Cup. What? I wasn't slated to race that. Yeah, but you're riding better than three other riders. So you're going to go, ah, okay. Again, energy management. The least amount of energy and the least amount of training to get the desired response. That's what we're after. So once we go through that, so we have, again, one to two weeks off or transition, uh, doing something else. Definitely not on their main bike. Definitely not. Now that doesn't mean take out your old bike. It means if you're a road racer, don't ride the time trial bike or ride a mountain bike or a gravel bike, something else. Then we have the anatomical adaptation, two to three weeks, hypertrophy, anywhere from four to eight weeks. Then we have max strength at least three weeks before they go. And then when they travel, that week before they travel and the week that they arrive, uh, it's going to be dynamic session, stimulation, I like to call it. And once you've gone through that stimulation, uh, you can, if they have a home base and it's available to them, or maybe they took kettlebells with them or purchased kettlebells, you can go back to some max strength type work. Uh, And this can be some Olympic uh, lifts with the kettlebell if they have the technique for it. If they don't, uh, there are different ways, and it will depend. I can't give you an answer for that. And then you're going to do the transfer over to sport-specific strength while maintaining. Again, hopefully they have a base with a gym that's within reason. Half-hour workout, one to twice a week. Uh, remember, the tissue quality is going to change as you go through the year. So maybe they were able to do 100 kilos uh, at the end of the, the time with you up until February. But if they're pulling 70, and this is why perceived exertion is so important. If they're pulling 70 and their perceived exertion is the same, it's a seven and a half, eight, 8 as it was for the 100 kilos when they left you, that's what you go by. Because they should be losing some of that strength because they're on the bike. And when it comes down to it, uh, they're going to go through their race specialization. You should know when that is. If you don't really know when there is one during the year, you don't have to take them through that. You can go through maintenance through a whole year. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If they don't have one peak race, if they really are working their way up to that, that top professional level, they may have a bunch of important races, in which case you're, again, least amount of work to produce the desired response. That's it. Um, then, part two, we spoke about... How do we go through actually building the program? Uh, Well, we want A, Bs, and Cs. We don't really need much more than that. Uh, And the thing is, a lot of people, and I I think that's what it is, is overlooking the dynamic warm-up and the soft tissue work and the breath work at the beginning. You can get a lot done with a half-hour strength training session uh, three days a week if you are paying attention to what the athlete needs are and you're writing your programming well. Now, that takes years to get to that level for just A, B, C, uh, or AB rather, but most of you out there are smart enough, like some of the questions I'm getting are just excellent. I can see the thought process and how far along you are. And it sounds like a lot of you have been thirsty or looking for the courses and the certification course that I've been putting out for quite some time. Uh, so it's almost like you guys were waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak, and really waiting for this to, to happen. So I'm um, very, very uh, excited to see that. And the thing as we go through to, to finish here is don't think that you're gonna have the perfect program but know that every time you go to write a program you want to get one percent better. So this is where keeping track, keeping everything in a, a local place is very important, giving athlete feedback, teaching them to, to, to guide their exercises and the weight selected by perceived exertion not by definite weight. We don't want absolute weight. How much you did that is irrelevant. However, the inter and intramuscular coordination that it takes and producing movement by creating stiffness and control in the places that you need it in order to execute that is 100% what we're after. So that's the last take-home. And actually, maybe it should have been the first. Teach your athletes to go based off of perceived exertion And don't try and jam in a whole year's worth of strength training into the little bit of time that they're with you. Now, some of you may be saying, Coach Brody, you contradicted yourself because you said you can't fit anatomical adaptation, hypertrophy, and max strength into the time they're with you, but yet you did. I did, but that maximum strength should actually continue a little bit. So for the riders who have a home base in Europe or they know where they're going and that there's a gym close by that they can use or that they had kettlebells that they purchased or can't have... Uh, at at the house, they should continue that strength training. And and again, I talked about when they're getting up to their peak race, we want once a week of heavy strength training, but it's A1, A2, B1, maybe B2, and that's it. They're in and out in 25, 30 minutes because it's energy management and recovery and adaptation. That's all we're after. So it sounds like I contradict myself, but I promise you when you get in and you start kind of toying with this a little bit, Uh, you are going to see that I didn't. That it is, in fact, you can't smush it all into three and a half months. It's got to go through the training year. You're going to get most of the work done. That's why it's called BASE. That's also why they have that time off. But by no means is it like what it is uh, for professional basketball players. So you're going to get a lot accomplished But the maximum strength phase should continue uh, up until the end of the Spring Classics, essentially. End of April uh, would generally be where we would transition to to strength maintenance or or transfer over to sport specific strength, so to speak, where they're really focusing on the bike. But even then, I generally like for the females a 24 and an 8 kilo kettlebell, 24 is for deadlifts. Uh, The 8 or 12 would be for upper body work or squats. Um, and even for the, the 24, some of them can use it. They're really strong, man. They got great posture. Uh, and then for the guys, I generally like a 32 kilo kettlebell, 24 to 32, depending on the the athlete, uh, and an eight or 12. So it's the same for both sexes because we're dealing with cyclists. We don't need massive upper body strength, but we need enough as well as those, uh, three to four bands we talked about, a two inch band, a four inch band, uh, the hip loop and the medium, um, the medium mini band. And that's a full gym that they can use during the season. Now, is it strength training? Absolutely. Is it the type of strength training that I would do with them if I had access to them and they had one spot that they were uh, living from and had a gym around the corner? No, I'd fly in uh, probably two or three times during the season to have sessions with them and see how they're moving and make sure they're, they're getting what they need. Um, So that's it for today. Uh, I'd like to hear your questions, comments. Maybe you have some complaints. Maybe I went on too long on certain things and didn't cover others. Uh, Let me know. Uh, You can email me, Brody, B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, I-E, at humanvortextraining.com. Follow us on Instagram at H-V as in Vortex Training, and then also on Facebook facebook.com forward slash hvt412. Those are the numbers, 412. Uh, And you can also find us on YouTube at HV, as in Vortex Training. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. And I must bid you adieu once again with just a little bit of Ferris Bueller. That's it for today. So until next time, remember, train smarter, not harder. Please like, share, and give us a thumbs up and positive review wherever you downloaded this fine podcast. And remember, it is all about you.
0: That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.